0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, in uh, Ephesians to chapter 5. we be reading from verse 15 to verse 21. Ephesians 5, verse 15 to 21, you'll find that page 978 in the Pew Bible. It's the Word of God. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that your spirit will. Dwell richly in each one of us, in my heart as I speak and as I hear, and in all our hearts, Lord God, as we hear your word, uh, show us what it is to be filled with the Spirit, that we might walk accordingly. We desire to honor you in our hearing and in our subsequent living. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the Apostle Paul is continuing his treatment, his discussion uh, of the Christian's walk, how we are to live as Christians. And here we fundamentally, in verses 15 to 21, have three more commands, three areas of thought that we are to turn our minds to, understanding how we are to live, And just as he did in the previous section, Paul gives positive and negative commands. Those positives and those negatives reflect the reality of Christian living, the putting off of the old self, the putting on of the new self. Another way of putting it is this, Christians ought to be known as Christians both for what they do not do and for what we do. And Paul introduces us to the idea here of Spirit-filled living. That's actually the third command. But that's really what's undergirding the whole section on Christian living. We are to live according to the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. We are to put off the old self. We are not to live as the Gentiles do. We are to live as God's own children filled with the Spirit. And that concept of being filled with the Spirit there in verse 18 following, he expresses in three ways. He says that a Spirit-filled life for the Christian will involve mutual encouragement, one of the other. It'll involve great thanksgiving to God for all that he's done, and it will involve submission, one to each other in the faith. All these are hallmarks of spirit-filled Christian living. Now, there are three fundamental commands in the section before us. The first command is there in verse 15, and it's a command that we are to walk carefully. Walk carefully, verse 15. Then in verse 17, another command, do not be foolish. Do not be foolish. And thirdly, verse 18, the fundamental command there is not, do not get drunk, though that's important. The fundamental command is, be filled with the Spirit. Walk carefully, do not be foolish, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. This is how then Paul is calling us, instructing us how we are to live. The first thing he says is, walk carefully. Uh, Let's take a look at his style of writing once again. We saw it a little bit last, last week, and we'll see the similar thing again. He gives here commands with respect to Christian living. Verse 15, look carefully. Verse 17, do not be foolish. Verse 18, do not get drunk, be filled with the Spirit. But then he's going to qualify those commands in each section. He qualifies them. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. He qualifies it then with two phrases, clauses, not as unwise, but wise. Verse 16, the second one, making the best use of the time. You see, as a command. Uh, Then he follows it up with qualifiers, and in verse 15 and 16, he gives us a reason why should we walk carefully, because the days are evil. In other words, Paul is filling out for us not just a bare command, walk carefully, but he's telling us something about the context and the nature of those commands. And again, I want to reiterate what Pastor Rockin has said and I have said in previous weeks. These commands do not come to us simply as bare commands. As we read these things, surely we're reminded at least of the conduct and life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most certainly, we have commands directed towards us. How are we to live? We are to live in a spirit-filled, Christ-like Fashion. We're reminded then, as we've confessed tonight, as we've sung tonight, our Lord, according to these commands, lived a life of perfection. He lived a life of perfection in what he did and in what he did not do, both positively in his actions and negatively, as it were, in what he refrained from doing we've sung it in Psalm 19, we see it true of the Savior, it should be true of us, the Savior loved the law of God. He meditated upon it day and night. And now, friends, he has given us his spirit that we too might love that same law that we might meditate upon it day and night, that we might live according to it. So what is Paul calling us to here? He says, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. There's the command. Look carefully how you walk. Provides a qualifier, not as unwise, but wise. And then another qualifier, verse 16, making the best use of the time. And attached to those three clauses is a reason. Why should you look carefully how you walk, he says, verse 16, because the days are evil. Make best use of your time, says Paul. That's how you will be wise. That's how you will walk carefully, because the times, he says, the days are evil. In other words, he's putting before us, as it were, a doctrine of the Christian Uh, the Christian's use of time, how we use time. Matthew Henry, speaking on this section, talks about how our lives are regulated by the commands of Scripture, even when it comes to time. He says, make best use of the time, says Paul. Do not be unwise. That would be to make poor use of the time. If you lack care in how you walk, you're not making best use of the time. The days, he says, are evil. How, then, are we to regulate our lives in terms of timekeeping, time usage? How are our lives regulated by Scripture, as Matthew Henry says? Well, first of all, our lives are regulated by Scripture when it comes to timekeeping by the weekly rhythm of the Sabbath Day. Patterns of devotion and worship are found in the Christian life one in seven. That's the corporate gathering of God's people, a day separated from work and leisure that we might devote ourselves to this pattern of worship. But more than that we see do we not we see familial patterns of worship and we see individual patterns of worship scripture is clear both by precept and by example that all of us personally familiarly are to be in the word we are to have those regular rhythms and cycles of worship in our lives the psalmist is exemplary in this fashion. The psalmist speaks about it morning and last thing at night. He is meditating on the word. We see the same thing in the life of our Lord. Particularly, we see times, and it appears extensive times, devoted to him being alone In uh, a place where he would not be disturbed, so that he might devote himself to communion with God through prayer. In other words, Paul is saying this the Christian has a specific view of time and how to use it, making the best use of the time. Now, he qualifies that idea, does he not? Look carefully how you walk. He says, don't be foolish. He says, not as unwise, but as wise. Those two categories are really synonymous with the broad patterns of the text we've read in the previous verses of light and of darkness. The Christian is light and not darkness. We've read of wisdom and of folly. We've read of the old creation, the new creation, the put off, the put on. He's saying that the Christian ought to analyze how he or she spends his time. Is it for ourself or is it for the Lord? Is it wise or unwise? The second qualify there is clearly making best use of the time. Literally in the Greek, it's buying back the time. Some uh, translations say redeeming the time Purchasing that time back from fruitless, selfish use and using it for God glorifying uh, use in the service of others. Such a use of time, Paul says, is wise. We should use our time in the service of our own souls, in the service of the souls of others, and the advancement of the kingdom. I don't think Paul is. Uh, outlawing hobbies or interests that you or I may have but he's at least saying to us he's asking the question of us are you using those pastimes or are you simply using your time in a God honoring fashion are you using it for the blessing of others and of the kingdom or of yourself And to all that, he appends a reason. Do this, be wise with your time. Why? Because the days are evil. The times, if you like, are evil. We've read in the preceding verses of sexual immorality. Uh, We've read of false philosophies and deceitful talk. We've read of unfruitful works. We're about to read in verse 18 of drunkenness and debauchery. The days are dark. Indeed, even today, they are evil. He's spoken of sins that ought even not be named amongst the congregation of people. Their polluting power is great to the Christian. Paul's saying that's the reason why we are to stay kingdom-focused, time-oriented, kingdom-busy. We are to be wise in this respect, not as unwise. For example, the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Do not be deceived. We've seen that concept as well. Bad company ruins good morals. He continues, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. You can see Paul is tying themes from Corinthians there, even to our passage tonight. The point is this, friends. The more time we spend in and with the world, and let's be honest, we carry the world around in our pockets today, the more time we spend in and with the world, the more our morality, our ethics will become corrupted. Time with the world in this sense, if we are conceding ourselves to it, is not only wasted time and dead time, it's time that is harming us. The greater exposure we have to these principles and practices, he says, the times are dark, the more likely we are to be seduced by it, either in grand scale or just the gentle erosion of our characters, of our Christian character. So I think we can all ask ourselves this question can we use our time more profitably? And I'm sure we can all answer that question. Yes, we can. I recently spoke with someone who confessed their uh, overindulgence with the use of television. And they gave up television and uh, embarked on a course of theological study. Bravo! Wonderful use of their time. I think we can use our time... Whether it be our formal working time or even our hobbies and our leisure time, for example, to be inclusive of our brethren. We can use our time more wisely in the service of others. Older men here present, take younger men under your wing, teach them what you have learned, mentor them. Older women, you have an abundance of opportunities to to mentor and help and assist the younger women, the young mothers of this church and neither the men nor the women need a ministry to do that you can just do it it's that organic service serving is a great use of our time so also is discipleship which we'll see now in verse 17 paul's command there in verse 17 the second command this evening is do not be foolish do not be foolish And he develops that motif of wisdom and folly with another qualifier. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be foolish, but rather understand what is the will of the Lord. So if the antidote to folly is knowing the will of the Lord... Let me say that again. The antidote to folly is knowing the will of the Lord. That tells us much about folly, doesn't it? Do not be a fool. Do not be foolish. Folly, we know in Scripture, is not knowing God. It's denying God. Yet the fool is not absent of knowledge, nor is he absent of certainty but the certainty they have is in themselves, not in God. The folly of foolishness is found in self-knowledge, self-determination, self-rule. And the proverb substantiates this when it tells us there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. That's precisely the point. The fool in that proverb does not know the will of God. He thinks he knows the right way. The end is the way of death. They know something, but what they know is wrong. The essence of folly really is self. Self Self-certainty, self-will, self-definition. Paul says, don't be a fool. And then he says, but... And in the Greek, there's two different words for but. This is a strong, strong but. Rather, do not do this, he says. Do not be a fool. Rather, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's the antidote to folly. It's the opposite of folly. Know God, know his will. Know these matters of faith and life. Know them. You see faith what we believe and who we believe must be dictated by scripture in like manner how we conduct ourselves life must be dictated by scripture you see there's what we believe and how we behave has one rule and neither you nor I make that rule but understand what the will of the lord is. So what are we being called to do? We're being called to discipleship. We're called firstly to make wise use of our time. Now we're being called to the act of discipleship, to the idea of discernment and to the idea of obedience. Know the will of the Lord. Well, don't just know it, do it. Discern the will of the Lord. Find it out through searching the scriptures This is an antidote to folly. If you go through the Proverbs time and time again, you'll see how knowledge of God, fear of the Lord, knowledge of his word protects you from all manner of evils. It stops you going down that path. Your heart, your soul is armed with the truth. You discern, for example, the deceitful words of which we've read earlier, the unfruitful works, and you flee from them. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Take that word, feast upon it. Feast upon Christ and all his blessedness. Disciple yourself, and if you're responsible for others, disciple them also. A disciple follows his master. We're called to be avid students of the word. We're called to be men and women and children of prayer. That's how we know the will of the Lord. We're not waiting for some special revelation to drop into our heads from heaven. If you want to know the will of the Lord, pick up your Bible. Pray to him. He has revealed himself there. You see, knowing God's will equips us to discern the errors of doctrine and of practice, and calls us then to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Paul says, don't be foolish, but be wise. But then he moves into verse 18, and we could indeed spend many hours uh, on these verses, verses 18 to 21. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18 reads like this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Negative command, positive command, and then in verses 19 to 21, he fills out what it is to be filled with the Spirit. He says, Addressing one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Verse 20, Giving thanks always for everything. And verse 21, Submitting to each other a negative command followed by a positive command to be filled with the Spirit, and then three explanations of what it is to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, I've called this section Be Filled with the Spirit because that's really fundamental, not just to these three verses, but to the entire passage, the entire section of Paul's teaching on Christian living. We see this command, be filled with the Spirit. With what are we filled? Or perhaps another way of asking that is, what are we under the influence of? What are we under the influence of? The immediate contrast, of course, is not getting drunk. Paul says negatively, do not get drunk. He prohibits an abuse of alcohol. He prohibits a drunkenness. He's not prohibiting alcohol, but an abuse of alcohol. Because in drunkenness, one loses all one's senses, and one lacks almost completely self-control. That's the very opposite of being filled with the Spirit, the fruit of which is what? Self-control. And that is the essential contrast in the whole passage, as well as this command. What influence are you, dear Christian, fundamentally under? Are you under the influence of the spirits of the world, including alcohol, but the many spirits of the world? Or are you under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God? Paul is is building on a, a rich vein of teaching on on being under the influence of alcohol. We know what scripture says about it. It says wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. Uh, Listen to the description of the fool in Proverbs, the one who is given uh, to strong drink. Listen to this, Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has... Wounds without cause. Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Think on that. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who is complaining? Who has wounds without cause? I never understood that last bit. Who has wounds without cause? Until I worked for the British government. All my colleagues would go out Friday night, Saturday night, get blindingly drunk, and they'd come in on Monday morning covered in bruises. And they had no idea where these injuries came from. Why? Because they were blind drunk when they fell down the stairs. Wounds without cause. They have no idea how they even got those injuries. Because they gave themselves to alcohol in an unmoderated fashion. Friends, it's not just alcohol, of course. The spirits of alcohol and the spirits of the age. We can give ourselves to the age in like manner, as my old colleagues gave themselves to alcohol, and do ourselves untold damage. That's the opposite of being filled with the spirit. The very opposite of being filled with the spirit is to be filled with other spirits which encourage lax living and a lack of self-control. But Paul has three ways in which we, this night and going forward, can understand being filled with the Spirit. Now, these are not exhaustive. I'm not sure exactly why he's chosen these particular ones, but you can see those three ideas in verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, addressing one another, verse 19, giving thanks, verse 20, and verse 21, submitting to each other. First thing we need to notice that these practices he mentions in 19 to 21 are very much set in opposition to the practices he has mentioned thus far, getting drunk, sexual immorality, deceptive words, unfruitful works. These are Christian practices of which he speaks. The others are unchristian, anti-Christian practices. It's very important for us all, but especially young people. We understand there is a picture here of godly living, of spirit-filled living, which will protect you from all the troubles of this text. The first there is verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We have here the two dynamics of of corporate worship, and most commentators agree this is both referring to corporate worship, what we've done today, plus also those gatherings where we come together and we sing the praises of God outside of worship. But here we see the two dynamics and their wonderful dynamics of singing praises to God in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What are they? We make melody to the Lord with our heart, but we also address one another. We address one another. Fundamentally, of course, worship is directed at God. It is vertical in its sense and understanding but it is also very horizontal as Paul makes it abundantly clear. Christian fellowship consists in addressing each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. I think we know that reality in this church, do we not? The encouragement of hearing each other sing, we hear each other personally, because each one of you as we sing, we're personally testifying of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his kindness. I think even this morning, as we were singing "It Is well, I just sat there, I stood there silently and listened to the words of my brethren about me. I think there was a four-year-old behind me singing at the top of his voice, every single word of it is well. What a ministry that was to me in that moment. You don't need to stop singing to listen to each other, be addressed by other people in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know what you're doing when you're singing? You're praising God and you're instructing each other. You're addressing each other. You're saying to each other, I believe this. And I believe it enough to declare it publicly in the gathering of the saints. Friends, derive grace from that. And and give glory to God even more because he could just have, have ordained a way whereby we glorify him with no benefit to ourselves. But what profound enjoyment there is. In the assembly of the righteous, offering up praise together to God, hearing each other, being addressing each other in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Reflect on worship even while you are doing it. That's one way to live a spirit-filled life, Paul says. He says, "Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. How addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The next thing he says is verse 20. This is also the second way to be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think back to verse 4. Paul has already expressed the importance of thanksgiving in the Christian life. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Replace one with the other. Replace that which is crude and filthy with thanksgiving to God. Now he returns to this idea, giving thanks always and for everything. It's pretty comprehensive there, is it not? It's interesting that this comes after the singing verse. There's a natural association with singing and giving thanks. It's one of the central components of our singing worship. One commentator speaks about giving of thanks uninterruptedly through the whole of the Christian life. Calvin writes on Thanksgiving, it is a pleasure which ought never to lose its relish an exercise of which we ought never to weary, innumerable benefits which we receive from God yield fresh cause of joy and thanksgiving, a pleasure which ought never to lose its relish, especially in the gathered worship of God's people. Thanksgiving is an exercise in our lives, both corporately and privately, which firstly gives glory to God. We give thanks to him for who he is and how he has treated us. But thanksgiving also increases our reliance upon God, because when we rightly attribute praise to him for who he is and what he's done, we understand more of what he's done we understand our own failings we understand our own inability yes it increases our own sense of reliance and so does our soul good thanksgiving friends is good for the soul it pushes out a complaining dissatisfied spirit give thanks the third thing Paul says there in verse 21 is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a right and proper mutual submission to be observed in the body of Christ, regardless of age or gender or office. There is a right mutual submission to be observed in the body of Christ the church, regardless of age or gender or office. We're all familiar, uh, for example, with the commands in Scripture, uh, wives submit to your husbands, uh, for Christians to, to honor those who rule over them, and there's some sort of authority structure there in both those commands. But here Paul is saying we are to submit to one another, regardless of age, regardless of gender, or regardless of office. What Paul means is this, we are to put others before ourselves. We are to put others before ourselves. We are not to stand on our own rights. We're to seek the good of others before we seek it for ourselves. That's the kind of mutual submission he's talking about. And where there's differences of opinion and we feel free, and conscience able to yield to another, let's do it. Let's do it one to another. We're members of the same family after all. We should treat ourselves like that. We do so out of reverence for Christ. That ties us back to our Savior. Think as he did, so should we. As our master did, so also must his disciples do. And coming back to our Savior is really the foundation of this text, which Pastor Rocken has emphasized, and I think so too have I. Consider our Lord. He counted himself nothing that he might come and deliver us. He came in the form of a servant. He washed the feet of sinners yes he died on the cross for sinners though he was god that's the kind of submission not only to his father in heaven but also as it were to the needs of us as sinners he came to resolve those needs not by a magic wand but by a righteous life and a death which took away our sins. Friends, it's the life and the death of Christ and the subsequent granting of the Spirit to the Christian that empowers all this Christian behavior. The power's not found in yourself, in full reliance upon the grace of God. That's how we go forward. Yes, his life is exemplary of these behaviors. Most certainly it is. But it's more than that. His life provides us with a righteousness that we cannot muster or produce through law-keeping because we can't do it. Yet he has done it for us. And his death, not only is it taken away the full record of our sins. But his death, you see, has decisively separated the Christian from the power of sin in our lives. Get your mind around that tonight. The death of Christ has decisively. Broken the power, the hold, the dominion that sin once had in your life, dear Christian. And dear friend, if you're here tonight, not as a Christian, we would say you're still under that dominion. You're still under the power of sin. The way to be released from the power of sin and the curse of sin, which is death, is through believing on this Saviour. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That power of sin has been broken in our lives, decisively at the cross and progressively through the rest of our lives through the work of the Spirit. That's to say, friend, the world and its influences become less and less attractive day by day. And we become more and more like the Savior Day by day, it's slow, often painful, but it is God who has begun a good work and most assuredly will bring it to completion. He has made us his children. He has put his spirit within us. The command is this, be what you are. You are children of God. Now live like it. Let's pray. We are most humbled, Lord God, at the extent of grace in our lives. Father, we can scarcely conceive, we can scarcely conceive of this work. Had you not revealed it to us in our lives, we could not possibly believe of the empowerment and the liberty and freedom from sin that we possess. Write these truths upon our heart then, Lord God, that we might more and more pursue righteousness. We might put to death the deeds of the flesh. We might put off the old self and put on the new. Spirit of God, work richly in us, filling us with life anew so that we might love what you love and do what you would do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.